This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. In the world of salsa music, Ruben Blades is one of the greats. His 1978 album Siembra, a word that means planting or cultivating, remains one of the best-selling salsa albums of all time. So Ruben Blades, or as we call him in Latin America, Ruben Blades, uh, though his name is actually Ruben Blades, uh, is one of the most important figures in salsa. Graciela Moczkowski writes for The New Yorker about Latin American politics and culture. He's an incredibly prolific artist, a writer, a singer, an activist, and a Hollywood actor. Hi, my name is Rudy Veloz, and I have this music that is going to blow you away. (laughs) I grew up in Argentina, and he really sings for um, an entire people. We all feel like Blades or Blades songs are speaking about the struggles of our own countries. Uh, It's not about Panama or uh, Latinos in New York. It's really about all of us. 45 years ago, um, he released his very um, first really big album, Siembra, uh, that he recorded with Willy Colon, who was at the center of the salsa movement then. And it was the first album that really brought salsa outside of New York and outside of the U.S. and Latin America to the world. Now you can, you know, there's salsa. The salsa movement is very much alive and vibrant in Israel, in Taiwan, in in Japan. You know, you could say that Ruben Blades or Blades uh, sort of did for salsa music what Bob Marley did for reggae. And uh, he really brought it into the global consciousness. Blades just finished up a summer tour, and he's been working on a memoir. Graciela Machkovsky sat down to talk with Blades about his life in music, politics, and acting. Okay, pues empecemos. Um, buenas tardes. Muy buenas tardes. So, um, I always start at the beginning. So, I wanted to start uh, in 1969, when you were 21, and you came to New York City for the first time. 
And in that trip, you recorded what I believe was your first album mm -hmm. uh, from Panama to New, to New York, the Panama, Nueva York, uh, with Pete Rodriguez and the, his orchestra. Uh, let's listen for a moment to a song from that album just to get a sense of what it sounded like. Esta tierra que nos vio nacer, la que nos cubrirá después. En donde el sol nos da su aliento, la tierra brinda su bendición. En donde el mar canta el arroyo que mi madre produció. So tell us about that album and where it came from. As anything, and most of the things in my life, it came as a result of a total unexpected occurrences. I had quit music by that time uh, because uh, the dean of the law school in Panama asked me if I was going to be a musician or a, or a lawyer because somebody saw me playing at a private house uh, with a band called Los Salvajes del Ritmo, and the professor went and uh, told the dean that he had seen me and uh, that he, he didn't think that that was a good idea to have a student singing on the weekends. So Was, was this a very conservative uh, yes, environment? It was very, 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 very strict. So anyway, then a friend of mine that was a musician, uh, Francisco Buckley, the first recording studio ever to have been built in Panama, uh, Discos Ismeños, had asked him to come with his band and perform to make sure that everything was in its right position to record. So Bush, knowing that I sang, called me and asked me to be a part of the group, and I said, I can't do that. And he said, no, this is a private thing. There's nobody, no one's going to be there. And it's just a band. Please help us with this. And I said, well, I'll go and help as a backup. I went. The owner of the record label had brought somebody from New York called Pancho Cristal, which was one of the biggest producers in New York at the time, to supervise the, the happenings. The band was uh, three, I think, three horns in the rhythm section, so eight people. One or two of the guys got lost, so they couldn't play the arrangements. So that required then improvisation. Benito Guardia, who was the piano player for Bush, said, Rubén, you like, uh, you know, let's do El Raton, which was a very popular song from Cheo Feliciano at the time. And I did it. Pancho Cristal was at that moment in the cabin, and when he heard my voice, he ran out and went to me because at that time my voice sounded very much like the sound of the voice of Jose Cheo Feliciano, who was a, rep, a recording star. And he was stunned. And he asked me if I ever wanted to, you know, record an album. And I said, no, nah, not now. I can't do music, you know. The thing is, he said, look, if you ever get to New York, call me. And he gave me his number. Then, in Panama, in 1968, we had had the military coup. Mm -hmm. So the, one of the first things they did, the military did, was to close, shut down the university. Um, now, my mother was very afraid that I was going to join any of the movements. and As a guerrilla, como guerrillero. She was concerned that I was going to join. So she came up with this notion, like if I wanted a, a holiday, I remember for my birthday, she wanted to send me to New York. And I called Pancho Cristal, that producer that I had met the year before, and then he said, oh, yeah, come over and I'll, and I'll um, 
I'll record you. Then we recorded this basically salsa album, and that's how this album got done. I left New York, went back to Panama. The university was reopened. I went back to law school. And, and you finished your, your degree there. I finished my degree. I never got involved in music again until the album came out, I believe, in 1970. Yes. I didn't even know about it when it came out. It didn't come out come out in Panama. It only came out here. In Panama, it, it, it was released in Panama. Um, you know, the first song of the album was a song I had written about a guerrilla a guerrilla fighter who gets who is murdered by the army. Juan Gonzalez. Juan Gonzalez. So I thought, in order not to be arrested, I thought I can uh, deflect the whole notion by saying that this these events were occurring in a, in a mythical place. <laughs> so I said, la historia que van a escuchar está basada en hechos ficticios. You know, this, this is all fiction. I'm doing this. This is fiction. Uh, any, cualquier semejanza con personas mm -hmm. vivas o muertas es pura coincidencia. Any, if this, if this looks like Che Guevara, it, it's, it's just a coincidence. <laughs> so you didn't settle in New York then. As you said, you came back to Panama. Yes. You got your law degree. And, but you ended up coming back to the U.S. in 1973 to Florida, oh, where your parents 74. were. 74. My father was accused of, uh, by Noriega, who was then a, um, a colonel. He was accused by Manuel Antonio Noriega, being in, my father being involved in a plot to kill him. Oh, wow. So my family, my mother took my family. Was that, uh, was that the truth? And I don't think so. I don't think it was the truth, but my father was a detective. He was working with the DEA. Uh, DEA had just started. Oh. So the DEA was using my father in Panama as a, as a contact and investigator because my father was one of the few de Panamanian detectives who spoke English. Right. And um, so the fact that I think the DEA was closing in on Noriega made him want to get rid of it. So in 1974, I graduated from law school. I was working with people in jail at the time. I finished my, my thesis. I presented it, and um, I was um, approved. And uh, I decided to leave because I didn't I see no point of being a, a lawyer under a military dictatorship. So I went to Florida, and my family was having a lot of trouble. My mother was working in Florida. My father could not get a job. I had three small brothers. I, my diploma was not accepted by the Florida bar. So I didn't know what to do. I felt useless. I, I didn't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, I thought of calling Fania Records, which was the biggest salsa label at the time. A great big the Fania All-Stars, everybody! And I called and I offered myself as a writer and a singer, and they said no to both. And uh, and then I said, well, do you have any jobs? And, 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 he, and then they said, well, as a matter of fact, we just had an opening today in the, in the mail office. And I said, well, what does that mean? What, what, what are the chores? They explained it to me, and I said, I'll take it. But um, when Barreto, Barreto's band broke for the second time, Tito Allen, a wonderful, great local singer, uh, left the band. Barreto had to find another singer. So somebody told him that I sang. And then he came to the mailroom to ask me if it was true that I sang. And then he sort of interrogated me for like a while, I, I, for, for like an hour, like trying to understand what, what what it was that I was doing there. 
And uh, finally, he, 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 he gave me um, a date for an audition, and I went. He hired uh, Tito Gomez, who had been working with La Sonora Ponceña at Papa Luca in Puerto Rico, excellent singer, Tito. <laughs> and he hired me as well. So he had two singers in case that one singer left, the other one was still there. Right, and this is how you started, really, here. That's, just, that's how I started yeah, full-time as a musician in 1974 or 75, I'm not sure. Right. From the start, you were politically engaged, and you sang about political topics. You talk about, you were writing poems about what was happening in Panama when you were in high school. And uh, Juan González, the, the song you referred to in your first album, is about the death of a guerrilla, a guerrillero. Pablo Pueblo from 1977 is about this poor man who comes home and tired and hopeless, uh, hopeless after working all day. The politicians he voted for have never made his life better. Um, here's a bit of Pablo Pueblo for those who haven't heard it. Regreso un hombre en silencio de su trabajo cansado. Paso no lleva prisa, su sombra nunca lo alcanza. No espera el barrio de siempre, con el farol en la esquina, con la basura ya enfrente y el ruido de la cantina. Pablo Pueblo llega hasta el sábado. So you've written song about about class, about the struggles of people, about dictatorships and revolutions, about the desaparecidos in Latin America, etc. But you've always rejected the label of political singer or protest mm -hmm. singer, and you've never want to be seen as somebody who um, sings political songs. Yes. Why? Because uh, political songs are propaganda. By definition, if you start singing about political ideology, you're You're, you're not an artist. You're, you're, you're doing propaganda, basically. I, I try to be as close to a newspaper person as I can. And try, of course, it's, you can't really say that you're objective uh, by writing songs that, that reflect a point of view. You have a point of view. But you can be balanced, and you have to be careful in, in how you write it so, so it doesn't become a lie. And basically what I thought at the time was that music, especially salsa music, was creating uh, what did not exist at the time, and I did not see it at the time, which was this excuse or this vehicle for total strangers to meet and all of a sudden share a common ground. Mm -hmm. So imagine that incredible possibility of having all these people who come from all these different walks of life in one place. Okay, so you can dance. Well, let's think too. Enhance the experience you're having right now, which is a contact. You're, you're, you're touching a total foreign, a stranger to you in, a, in sometimes intimate ways because it's a contact dance. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden now I'm talking to you about a, a priest that was killed or I'm talking to you about your mother that died of cancer, or I'm talking to you about the girlfriend that, that went away because you were black and she was white, or I'm going to talk to you about the, the gay guy who doesn't dare to say that he's gay because uh, he, he may have reprisals. Some people had never heard songs that touched politics or political aspects before, and some of them got very upset with me because they called me a communist uh, because I was like not using music only to escape. Mm -hmm. And they wrongly interpreted 
the direction of what I, my criticism and ascribe it to a political ideology, which really pissed me off because I was always trying not to go there. I was remembering Charlie Garcia, you know, the Ar- Argentine Oh, star. yes, I do. <laughs> he, uh, he once said he was, you know, those questions, what advice would you give to young artists or young musicians? And he said that he, the only piece of advice he had was to not make compromises at the start because people always thought that you had to compromise at the beginning yes. to be able to be famous. But he said, by the time you're famous, you're going to be, you're not going to be able to walk out of that box. Absolute, it's too late. Absolutely. Very yeah. smart. My goal from the beginning was not to be famous, to become famous or rich. My goal from the beginning was to communicate, to present a position and, and, and create a, a conversation. Singer Ruben Blades talking with Graciela Machkowski. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Stick around. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target and destroy cancer-causing proteins right inside the cell. It's how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Redman. We'll continue now with the salsa legend Ruben Blades, who sat for a long interview this summer with Graciela Moczkowski of The New Yorker. This year, Blades won his 11th Grammy Award. He's credited with bringing about a kind of socially aware songwriting to salsa. He's also been a government official and a popular actor. He was a lead actor on Fear the Walking Dead. And Ruben Blades continues looking for ways to push the bounds of his music. Uh, So let's... Talk about jazz. So I attended your performance in 2014 uh, with Winton Marsalis at uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. That was great. I remember um, the, the, the beginning was mostly jazz, and then you started singing some of your 
classics. And then all these people who had been restless in their rooms, they just <laughs> <laughs> finally could dance. Yeah. And so everybody just jumped off their seats and started mm -hmm. dancing on the sides of the aisles. It was wonderful. Uh, but I believe that was the, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if I understand it correctly, that was the origin of uh, Sal Swing, this project of three albums that you recorded in 2021 mm. with uh, Roberto Delgado, mm -hmm. the Panamanian big band leader. And Sal Swing is about the connections between Afro-Cuban music and jazz. Again, convergence, mm -hmm. right? And connection. Um, and uh, I wanted to listen to one song. I hope you find the choice right, but I chose The Way You Look Tonight. Mm -hmm. It's always so joyful. But the thing again, to bring it into context, my father is a gambling man. So one day he showed up in the house with a, with a record player. Um, it was the biggest record player I've ever seen. And, and with the record player, it, it came some albums. And these albums were some of the songs that I picked when I did the South Swing. Um, there was an oh, album, right. there was a Tony Bennett record, there was, a, of course, a Sinatra album, there was a Sammy Davis Jr. album. <laughs> so I learned to sing on top of the records, and that's why I lost my accent singing. And as a matter of fact, I learned how to breathe because I started mimicking Sinatra so so, so that I could, I, I ended up learning how to breathe just by following what he was doing on <laughs> his records. But the point is that the jazz-Latin connection is an old one. Right. It's a very old one. In Panama, you have from Louis Russell uh, that ended up being uh, uh, Louis Armstrong's band uh, leader, Danilo Perez, who, who played with Wayne Shorter. So Carlos Enriquez, who's the bass player for Wynton Marsalis' um, Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra, approached me to say, you know, would you like to do some shows with us? And and we did. and uh, And it worked. Uh, you inter at one point between 20 2004 and 2009, you interrupted again your career as a musician for, for those, what, five years to take on uh, the role of Minister of Tourism in Panama. You had, this was after you had run for president of Panama in 1994, which you didn't win, obviously. And, and when you came back from Panama, um, you took on, a, took on an acting role in Fear the Walking Dead, a post-apocalyptic TV series, the spin-off of The Walking Dead, which lasted eight seasons. I think it's coming to an end now. Yes. And you said that was, you did it as a way to go back to relevancy. You said people were asking, is he dead? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but... No, it is true. Is it? Sure. Uh, and then, so, so this was not your first acting role. You've acted in like 30 movies and you've been, you know, um, in Hollywood for a long time. But I wanted you... To talk a little bit about this decision to be a killer in a zombie movie as a way to go back to popular um, culture. There were many things. I mean, one of them was I went I went back to to public service because it was a way to I hope to inspire the young in my country Panama to become involved in politics. And most people don't think, uh, at least in Panama, uh, to become involved in politics because they considered 
that is corrupt and is um, horrible. Mm -hmm. And I tell them it's corrupt and horrible because people like us don't participate. You have to eliminate the space for the corruption. For five years, I didn't do any singing or writing or touring or doing movies or anything. For five years, I just stayed in the public service. I did not want to go first to the be a minister of tourism. I wanted to work in the correctional system in Panama because oh. that's what I had been involved with when I was in law school. The president felt that I would be more helpful in, in an area that was going to contribute to the national gross product, and they needed somebody there that can push it forward. Hmm. But anyway, once I left Panama, and not having recorded and not having done anything— um, I didn't even have a, a, a an agent anymore. Hmm. I needed I needed work, but not, it wasn't just the the fact that people were going like, where is he? But it was also like the I, I was thinking in more practical ways as well. For instance, the, to get the the medical um, insurance of Screen Actors Guild. Right. So um, I I ended up being offered a role in this upcoming, wasn't a spinoff, but, but something that came from, sprung from The Walking Dead. And what, what attracted me to the role was that it was a total opposite of me. It was a guy who had worked with the death squads in Salvador. Daniel Salazar. Daniel Salazar. So that when the, the event occurred and, and death people were ra- rising and, and, and killing living people, uh, for reasons that have never been ex- totally explained, uh, I could say that about the Trump candidacy. Um, and um, the thing is that his skills ended up becoming the thing to have to survive in, in this new apocalyptic world. And uh, it provided me with that access, not just to audiences in this country, but also worldwide. Right. So all of a sudden, you have somebody in Nigeria that maybe doesn't know about Pedro Navaja, and all of a sudden, goes like, oh, Daniel Salazar sings? <laughs> I, <laughs> I didn't know that. You've run for, for president in Panama, but how about your political participation here in the U.S.? I wouldn't do it here because I, I, I would have to be a citizen. I, I, oh, you're still not? I'm not a citizen. I'm, I'm a resident because if I had become a citizen, then I could not participate in politics in Panama. Of course, right. You said that coming back to the to the U.S. that Latinos have no political power to speak of because mm-hmm. we act like tribes and mm-hmm. we don't identify as one people. Mm-hmm. What did you mean by that? Basically, you know, it's an again an interesting scenario. When you think about Latin America, you think about really the world. You know, in Latin America, you have white, black, brown. You can't really say that one group represents all groups because it's not true. So that's one very important difference. The second is that people who, like myself, ended up in this country came running from dictatorship or a scenario where we didn't have opportunities. When people arrive to the United States, most people don't want to talk about politics. They feel, you know what, I'm not going to rock the boat and I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to be quiet. So as a result of that, we don't have the political representation and or power or and or recognition. We're not even considered in films. I think there's it, it's 4% yeah. of all acting roles yeah. that are played by Latinos. But then when you go and see how who goes most 
to the movies, Latinos. Hmm. Who eat more popcorn, Latinos? You know, who <laughs> I, I don't drink know more true. soda? <laughs> I, well, if, we, if we're the top ones and going to, to the movies, we're sure eating more popcorn than anybody popcorn? else. <laughs> uh, but I'm saying, where are we? Uh, when are we going to break away from the roles of, of, of narco-trafficking, a maid, uh, illegal alien, hoodlum? Right. You know? So, uh, Do you feel that you were able to I was, break away from I that? I was able to say no, mm-hmm. and I lost. I lost. I'll never forget. I lost a, a role in, in a movie called Q&A, and I turned it down because uh, it was a drug dealer. Mm-hmm. And as a, as a career move, it was not a wise move because if I had done that role, which was a lead, mm-hmm. I maybe could would have been seen for something else. Right. But I, I, I could say no because I had the music. I'm not turning, I'm, I'm not criticizing those who need to work and, and, and because they need to support themselves. I had an option that was brought to me by music, so I said no. So my second question about staying relevant. Um, you do a lot of collaboration with younger musicians, yes. not just across genres, but also with people who are much younger and in and with shorter much shorter careers so mm-hmm. you play with Calle 13 with mm-hmm. Natalia Lafourcade I love your song with Natalia Lafourcade and if you ask my son who is 12 about Ruben <laughs> Blades he will tell you that Blades is the guy who played with Stay Homas during the pandemic <laughs> Stay Homas from uh, uh, Stay Home in case people don't know what we're talking about was a group created during the COVID-19 lockdown in Barcelona three guys who play on their rooftop and invited artists to play with them via their cell phones. So all my son's friends, those kids, were listening to 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 for to them on YouTube. Yo que hasta ayer no conocí el dolor del que hablan las canciones. Me he olvidado de mí mismo, me asomo al abismo de mis pasiones. I thought they were great. Melodically, I love where they go. They're very good musicians on their own right. So then through the through the net, I send a message. Hey, guys, Eto, I'd love to do something with you. <laughs> and then they call me. I saw him again last year in Cruel in the festival in Barcelona, mm-hmm. and I sang with them live in Barcelona. Oh, that's great! I Twenty-five thousand people, which is <laughs> which is something. Again, I'm going like well, this kids going from being in a in a in a rooftop <laughs> singing with a glass and with a some a can, right? To all of a sudden twenty-five thousand people. They they had a, their tour was bigger than mine. That's great. Okay, Ruben, muchísimas gracias. No, gracias a ustedes. Thank you all for for listening. Por la esquina del viejo barrio lo vi pasar. Graciela Machkowski speaking with Ruben Blades. I'm David Remnick. That's the New Yorker Radio Hour for today. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join us next time. Pa que no sepan en cuál de ellas lleva el puñal. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton 
Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Mputubwele. With guidance from Emily Botine and assistance from Mike Kutchman, Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandro Deckett. And a special thanks this week to Alana Casanova-Burgess. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. WNYC Studios is supported by This is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.